In an explosive interview with Harvard professor Roland Fryer, Barry Weiss speaks about the scandal that cost him tenure at the prestigious university and the firing of a one Claudine Gay who was responsible for it. We'll talk about that and more today on IndieThinker. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. If you have yet to see our brand new trailer for the film Fatherless that showcases the breakdown of the nuclear family, then you need to do so. And you can do so by signing up for our newsletter. Not only by signing up for the newsletter will you get a host of great extra content that is for our subscribers only, but you'll also get access to the trailer at least as it sits in its present state because we're right now in production of this film. And by accessing this trailer, you can also find ways to help support this film so that we can bring this much needed project to market. I believe it is the linchpin for changing the future of America. If we can fix the fatherless epidemic in America, we can fix America and we need your help to do that. So sign up for the newsletter today. You can do that by going to the link on the screen or going to the description of this podcast where you'll find a Linktree link that gives you the ability to interact with a bunch of different content from IndieThinker, but most of all, sign up for our newsletter. You can't charge him anyway just because what took place was tragic. This is what Barack Obama said in relation to Officer Darren Wilson about the shooting of Michael Brown. This was after the Obama DOJ had fully investigated the shooting and then eventually cleared Darren Wilson of all charges related to the shooting. But unfortunately, the damage was done. BLM, by larger mansions, had done their work and they had proliferated the hands up, don't shoot lie so much to the point where people in the present still today think that black communities are victims of systemic police violence and the biggest threat facing black communities are actually the police that are there to protect them. It's why it's important that you don't just listen to Black Lives Matter at all, but actually listen to people like Roland Fryer. If you don't know who he is, Roland Fryer is the youngest African-American ever to be awarded tenure at Harvard. He has received numerous awards, including a MacArthur Fellowship in 2011 and the very first African-American to get the John Bates Clark Medal in 2015. Roland Fryer produced perhaps one of the most important pieces of research on systemic police violence in 2016. In it, he found that yes, black people are disproportionately affected by a very, very slim margin by low level uses of force talking about roughing them up, pushing them up against cars, that kind of thing, low level force. But when it comes to deadly force, that actually black people are less likely to be victims of deadly force by the police. As you can imagine, Overturning the Black Lives Matter lie and the narrative that we've been told as a society caused no small firestorm for Roland Fryer. Um, and as a result, as you'll see in our conversation today between him and Barry Weiss, a lot of repercussions happened as a result of this research. Let's check out the first clip where you can see him discussing what took place when he finally released the results of his findings. Back to 1991, I don't like the police very much. I don't. What had been your experience with the police? I had been roughed up by the police. I've had guns pulled on me. Mind you, they pulled me over and I decided it would be a good idea to get out of the car and walk away. <laughs> the details are important, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but in any event, they'd, I didn't like their customer service. And so... Um, <laughs> 
I just didn't like police. They came, they took half my family away. Granted, they were selling a lot of drugs, but again, not the greatest customer service. So I was biased against the police. I'm not, that's obvious. I went and um, I don't think I've received a better education since my grandmother taught me to read. It's a hard job. And I know that sounds obvious sitting on a stage. It's a really hard job. I am a terrible police officer. Uh, after four hours, everyone looked like a criminal to me. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I was hangry. I don't know what it was, but I'm telling you, I, I'm serious. They were like, you could never be a cop. Because I was like, hey, let's pull over. That kid's got a basketball. I don't like it. I, I participated in, tr- in these weapons training things, not real weapons, relax, but like um, these weapons trainings where there's simulations and some guy, like I'm in the building, the guy walks out, he's got a baby, I shoot the guy right in the head and they're like, what was about the baby? I said, sorry, I didn't see the baby. You know, like, I was a bad police officer. But what I really did, <laughs> I'm serious. I, I, um, I realized the job is really hard. It was the end of a 12-hour shift in Camden and we get a call for a potential overdose in a row house. It's an abandoned building, we bust in, uh, a person dies within six feet of me. And it shook me up a little bit. And so I looked at the guys I was with and I said, yo, how about beers on me? And they said, what do you mean beers are on you? I said. I don't know. I don't know how to say it. Do you want me to speak in Greek? I mean, I don't know. It's uh, beers are on me. We should leave here. Let the paramedics take over. We should go. And they said, we got to go back to work. Mm. And I said, but we just saw somebody die. And the police chief overheard me and he's, he was incredulous. He says, Roland, if I gave everybody a break every time someone died, I wouldn't know one would cover the shifts. And I was like, wow. It is a hard job. And so through these experiences, long story short, I collected a lot of data and those experiences helped me understand what types of data to collect. Um, We collected millions of observations on uh, everyday use of force that wasn't lethal. We collected thousands of observations on lethal force. And the key question, I alluded to it earlier in a bit of a joke, but the key question is not just this arbitrary, silly snapshots that some journalists, not named Barry, do a lot, which is black people are 13% of the population and they are 50% of the police shootings. I'm sorry about that, but I don't know what that has to do with the question. Right? And, And it was in this moment in 2016 that I realized people lose their minds when they don't like the result. Right? And so what my paper showed, you'll see tomorrow, uh, like some of you, uh, was that, yes, we saw some bias in the low-level uses of force every day pushing up against cars and things like that. People seem to like that result. But we didn't find any um, uh, racial bias in police shootings. Now, that was really surprising to me because I expected to see it. Hmm. The little-known fact is I had eight full-time RAs that it took to do this over nearly a year. When I found this surprising result, 
I hired eight fresh ones and redid it to make sure. They came up with the same exact answer and I thought it was robust and then I went to go give it and my God, all hell broke loose. This is why I love Roman Fryer. Essentially, he just told us that he had two different cohorts, eight people in each cohort independently investigate and they came up with information that showed that black people are not victims of systemic police violence. And when he was confronted with this information, even though he himself didn't want to publish it, he published it anyway because it needed to be heard. It needed to be discussed. This kind of intellectual honesty and integrity is rare these days, especially in a day and age where we hear about trusting the experts and trusting the science. It's so important that we pay attention to these kind of people because they are the heroes that will save our society. When everybody else wants to practice confirmation bias, there are a select few group of people who are actually willing to think for themselves. Now, of course, confirmation bias is the idea that you like to favor information that matches your beliefs and your values and your preconceived notions, your presuppositions, and you almost immediately reject anything that flies in the face of what you already believe. This is horrible, by the way, when we find this among Christians. Christians should be the most secure in their positions and be willing to discuss openly without resorting to straw man ad hominem attacks. But so very often, Christians kind of practice the same kind of confirmation bias, and we can't afford to do it. Now, I think we do it simply because, maybe out of good nature, we and others maybe have worked hard to come up with the ideas that we have, and we want to protect those ideas, and so we practice confirmation bias and resist them because we understand that actually it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to rethink. But that is the business of Christians who are willing to think critically and change their mind and grow spiritually and mentally as they're as they're given new information. Now, of course, we do this knowing that you can't change our position on the existence of God and on, on, on the orthodox positions of the Christian faith, not because we have something to hide, but because they're so robust and so full of good, truthful information. So we don't have to protect our ideas under the guise of confirmation bias, and nobody should at the end of the day. I'll, I'll be fair and just say that Confirmation bias I don't think is always nefarious, but there is a nefarious nature to it because of what subconsciously confirmation bias is actually doing. Really, it's a protection, a psychological defense mechanism that keeps us lazy and keeps us from rethinking our position on things. Yeah, it takes a lot of hard work to really think thoughts and to really have good, solid positions. But more and more in society, we're finding that those positions are rarer and rarer and actually people just double down on straw man and ad hominem attack and want to, um, and want to insinuate about an individual before they actually give the person the opportunity to speak about what they actually believe. And this is extremely deadly because the way to change the world is to change your mind. If you can't, then the world will always remain the way that it has been. But we need to be growing and constantly rethinking our positions and making sure that the positions that we now hold are firmly rooted in the truth. And then if they are, let your banner fly, baby. Anyway, we'll see when Roland Fryer did this, the repercussions of that. And I had colleagues take me into to the side and say, don't publish this. You'll ruin your career. Mm. I said, what are you talking about? I said, what's wrong with it? Do you believe the first part? Yes. Do you believe the second part? Well, it's the issue is they just don't fit together. 
we like the first one, but you should publish the, no the second one another time. I said, let me ask this. If the second part about the police shootings, this is a literal conversation. I said to them, if the second part um, showed bias, do you think I would, should publish it then? And they said, yeah, then it would make sense. And I said, I guarantee you I'll publish it. We'll see what happens. So it was, it was you know, I, I lived under, under um, police protection for about 30 or 40 days. I had a seven-day-old daughter at the time. I remember going and shopping for it because, you know, when you have a newborn, you think you have enough diapers. You don't. So I, I was going to the grocery store to get diapers with the armed guard. It was crazy. It was really, truly crazy. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really phenomenal experience. There are a lot of people, many people, and this has been a realization for me over the past few years of my own life, who faced with that exact decision point would make the opposite choice. I think the majority of people actually would make the opposite choice. They would think, I'm gonna preserve my career, my professional status, my prestige. You were the golden, I mean, you were a golden boy at that point. I'm gonna preserve my popularity, my ability to get along with my colleagues, someone nice to sit next to me in the cafeteria. Like, every incentive, to use an economics term, would be pushing you to make that choice. What is it inside of you? What can everyone here learn about what allowed you to make the opposite choice? To make the choice that would force you to suffer all of the consequences you would come to suffer. Some a direct result and some adjacent to it. I don't covet what they covet. I didn't go to Harvard to have Chardonnay at 10.30 in the morning. I just don't want to, it's not my thing. I, I'm, I'm, and it's okay if it's someone else's thing, it's just not my thing. Um, I came here, came there, to, I went there to make a difference, truly. I know that sounds naive to many of you. But I, as I tell my students, remember when you came to Harvard, you had lofty dreams of change in the world. It wasn't downside risk protection. Right? Everybody, everybody I know who I've seen walk through that, those ivy doors rocks the boat until they get in the boat, and then they say, steady now. I rocked the boat until I got in the boat, and I said, let's see how fast we can go. <laughs> and I've fallen out the boat, got run over by the boat. It's, it, it is what it is. But you got to be for something. Mm. Right? And so, I, I, I mean, I actually don't understand those other people. I don't know what they're maximizing. Let's talk about, yes. Let's talk about getting, um, I don't know if you can get run over by a boat, but falling out of the boat. Um, so you write this paper, publish it. Your daughter's seven days old. You have police protection. It's a dumpster fire, probably. That's how you're describing it. And then in 2017, Harvard opens this investigation into allegations from a former assistant who alleged sexual harassment in your communication. Ultimately, you're suspended for two years without pay. That ended in 2021. I wondered if you wanted to reflect on any of that at all. And I think the thing I'm personally most curious about is First of all, 
Do you think that the thought crime of your research put a particular target on your back? And the second is, there's been so many examples like this, how did you maintain, I don't know what other word to use other than your sanity, um, in a moment where I imagine you felt like the, the world had been turned upside down? Yeah, there's a lot there, so you may have to remind me. Um, I want to go back one, one step, and then we'll go to 2017. We talked about the tough parts about 2016, which were, you know, police protection and all that, but here's the cool part. I received thousands of emails. There was a time in my life during that period where I would say uh, hello to my wife and my newborn, and I had a three or four-year-old at the time, and then I would go up to my office and literally return emails nonstop for nine or 10 hours. Because yes, there was a lot of, um, a lot of the emails were nasty from both sides. I, I really, it, was, it, it pissed off nearly everybody. But there were a lot of them that were inquisitive. A woman from Kansas saying, thank you for putting data in this because I, I, I'm watching what's going on on TV and I don't know what to make of it. Can you help me understand? Um, and, and one of the, my secret obsessions, which I will tell you but don't tell anybody, is to force people to have civil discourse. I spend hours doing it. Someone will say to me, someone the other day said to me, that thing you wrote in the journal, that was such dumbassery. I didn't even know that was a word. And blah, 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 and it went on. And I said to him, thanks for the note. <laughs> I was just saying that uh, top talent should rise to the top. Could you explain to me your side of things? So we go back and forth, 20 emails. In the end, he says, this has just been the greatest conversation. <laughs> In all seriousness, I've done this thousands of times. I estimate my, I call them turning them. My turnover rate is about 80%. People want civil discourse. And so that's the great part about what came out is that we, I, I was able to be a teacher. We have data, we, we can educate. If we can bring the temperature down, we can actually talk to each other. Okay, 2017. Um, you know, one of the, in going from Daytona to Texas to, to Harvard, um, there are a lot of things I knew to watch out for. Just, you know, instinctively. Like, don't beat anybody up, you know? Because uh, the way you handle disputes at Harvard is very different because people will like whisper campaigns, oh, I heard he did this. And I was like, and I used to wonder, why can't we just go out by the bike racks and finish it? You know, I just didn't. <laughs> so I never got in a fight. I was good at Harvard so far. Um, what I didn't understand, and now many of you will say it's not possible for you not to understand this and you are entitled to your opinion, but I'm telling you what honestly I believe. I did not understand this thing called power dynamics. Truly. Um, because I would never do it, right? Like, Barry's way more fancy and, and famous than me, but like, if she says something that's not funny, I'm not gonna laugh. To appease her, it's not what I would do. Um, and so, 
I honestly thought um, that I was creating a space for people to do whatever they wanted, to let creativity reign. That means they could talk about what they wanted to talk about, uh, they could do whatever they wanted to do, and it, at that time, and unfortunately still now, it's not in my personality to go over to two people who seem to be enjoying an um, inappropriate conversation to go over there to them and say, I don't think that's appropriate for the office. I don't mean to make that tone, but that's what's in my head. Um, and so I didn't shut those kinds of conversations down. Uh, and and I, I thought this was a good thing. I honestly did. And I participated in a lot of jokes, okay? And I, and people were laughing. And not just like, ha, 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 but like falling on the floor, <laughs> laughing. And, um, and so it was a huge surprise to me that after a labor dispute, um, that someone would say that these conversations um, really damaged me and, and caused me harm. And I can tell you that if anything I said caused someone earnest harm, my God, I have apologized over and over again for that. I mean, I, 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 it's not, obviously, I would never, I wouldn't do that. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't realize at the time that there was a thing called power dynamics and all that. And so, yes, I, I, I made jokes that uh, I, I, it was shown that I made six jokes um, that were really terrible. But I, wanted, I want people to know that we're like jokes where like, it's like, the, here's the equivalent. Barry and I talking about someone on the street. Okay, like, hey, that person who walks by, they look funny, ha ha, right? And we would both laugh and we'd move on. Um, it wasn't like joking about the people. I mean, the way the New York Times wrote about it, you'd think I cornered people in their office and held them down, like, knock, knock, say who's there, <laughs> say it. That's not what I did. So I think it's a fair assessment at this point in time, and there are very few people who disagree with this now, that what happened to Roland Fryer was a travesty of justice that all of these sexual allegations that were made against him, most of them were immature and unwise, but they, they didn't rise to the level of taking tenure away from him or castigating him uh, the way that Harvard did. When you've got a plagiarist like Claudine Gay at the, at the top of the pile there, uh, rather, I think most people agree and see now the truth of what actually took place with Roland Fryer, that he was falsely accused because of his findings and the fact that they were inconvenient to those who were in power. Uh, so many people had been using race as a bunch of hucksters to try to uh, monetize the lie of systemic racism, and they couldn't allow for a Roland Fryer to come in and actually buck the system. Which is a reminder to us that we presently live in a society, it's not just Roland Fryer, it's all of us. We live in a society where the truth is not respected and not loved. In fact, the truth is a threat to our society. And we can tell what the future of our society will be based upon how we treat truth tellers. So what happened to Roland Fryer here is very, very scary. You know, I often wonder to myself whether we're living in uh, 
you know, George Orwell's 1984 or Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. The difference between those two, of course, is you have an authoritarian government that's in control of the truth and you only hear what they tell you, or a group of people who are so in love with pleasure that they really don't care about the truth as long as they're getting their feelings and their needs met. So, I, I struggle with where we are as a society, and we may be a mixture of both, but if I lean one way, I definitely lean to the side of Brave New World, because I think that, by and large, we don't care about the truth anymore. All the time on social media and in other places, you find these kind of, these kind of arguments that are totally based upon emotion and based upon feeling and based upon the idea that you can't say that because it's not nice. They, like, that's the mainstream idea that we see all over the place. And this is especially true as Christians, that, that we hear that the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice, that you have to be nice in everything that you say, and we make little room for those kind of divergent thinkers that may be blunt instruments, but may be telling the truth, and telling the truth in a way that we desperately need to hear it today. I liken it to this. Uh, we don't really care about whether or not the cancer doctor is really that nice or his bedside manner is that great. Sure, if he has it, fantastic, cherry on, cherry on top, icing on the cake. But if he doesn't have great bedside manner, we just wanna know that this guy is skilled and equipped and he knows what he's doing. Same with our heart surgeon or whatever. See, there's this notion in Christian circles that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, honestly, be as loving as you possibly can, but let's get back as a society where we quit telling each other that kind of stuff and actually what we care about more than how we feel or how we're treated is actually the message than, more so than the manner because the message matters way more. If the message be true, then let's quit caring so much about the packaging that it's in and let's let it really deeply sink into our heart and let's, and let's deal with it. In the meantime, we're drowning in a sea of irrelevance and in a sea of emotions and feelings that are pushing us further and further and further from the rock solid shore of the truth. And we're coming up with the most ridiculous ideas in society like men can compete in women's sports or that a man can get pregnant. All of that is predicated upon the way in which we deal with truth as a society. If we value emotions above truth, we will eventually find ourselves in such a dystopian reality that your life won't have significance or moral value. And of course, it's true that it is. But if our society doesn't value truth, then who's to say that your life matters? Anyway, I think it's important for us as Christians to push aside the kind of attacks and the kind of extortive blackmail, emotional blackmail techniques we see on social media and in other places that say, well, you can't say that because that's just judgmental or that's just not nice. Well, it's not our job to be nice. Sure, be as loving as you possibly can. It's our job to tell the truth. And telling the truth may be one of the greatest acts of benevolence that we can come up with in, in the present. Let's hear one last clip. How'd you get through it? Many people would have gone through that experience and said, bye, I'm leaving Harvard. I'm going to go into private equity. Yeah. I went back to Harvard so that everyone knows here and everywhere else that I could. Um, because there was a lot of obfuscation of facts and things like that. So um, that was important to me. People reached out to me at the time, a few, and said to me, oh my God, this is, must be really, really hard. It wasn't. Mm. It was really, really annoying. Growing up without a mother is hard. 
and I'm never going to forget the difference, right? Like one of the promises I've made to myself is I will never, ever worry about the types of things that middle class people worry about. If my drapes don't get here on, look, I, I got big customer service needs to, trust me, like, okay? But if my drapes don't get there on time from France because the barge gets held up, it's okay. It's okay. Right? Because I remember what it was like to go to bed hungry. I vividly remember what it was like to go to bed so scared. I know what gunshots sound like at night. I remember having to get up, making the decision at night at eight or nine years old. Do you pee in the bed or are you brave enough to walk to the bathroom? That's hard. Not people that I didn't like anyway, not wanting to talk to me anymore. <laughs> and so I had a little bit, I'll admit it, of a chip on my shoulder during the time, right? And I know I'm not supposed to say this, but yes, there's a lot of people who I thought were, there, the, the, there was one hard part, which is I had a lot of people in the academy who I considered family because I didn't really have Mine wasn't there. And those people cut out. Still haven't talked to them. Some of them have come back and said, hey, you know, we can be friends again. And I said, <laughs> no, we can't. But um, I did things wrong. Um, it wasn't because it was an evil heart. It was because I was ignorant. Um, you know, the day I heard about this thing called power dynamics, I literally started taking executive coaching literally that day. Um, and I would argued with the executive coach. I said, what do you mean? Power? Why would anyone laugh if it's not funny? Like, I mean, we really went at it. I learned a lot. Um, and so I, I did things wrong. I have apologized for those things. But it wasn't what, you know, it wasn't... <laughs> It, 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 it wasn't more than um, jokes among people that I thought we were friends. I mean, we, these people had Thanksgiving dinner at my house. I, I thought we could tell jokes, you know, and, and I, I, I should have known better. One of the details in this story is that you were suspended by a woman who I had never heard of until recently. Her name is Claudine Gay. And she said this in a letter to the economics department at the time. Professor Fryer exhibited a pattern of behavior that failed to meet the expectations of conduct within our community and was harmful to the well-being of its members. The totality of these behaviors is a clear violation of institutional norms and a betrayal of trust of the Harvard community. So I guess I want to ask, do you believe in karma? I hear it's a mother <laughs> And also, does calling for the genocide of Jews constitute bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Uh, a thousand percent. I love this final exhortation from Roland because I actually believe it's powerful, it needs to be heard, and it probably is the thing that caused him to make it through the emotional and psychological pressure that he faced when he was attacked for his findings. So remember where you came from is a valuable, valuable lesson for each and every one of us. It's a lesson of humility and, and so much more. 
But I think about this especially as our society becomes more and more post-Christian. There are a group of people who are going to celebrate that. There are a group of uh, atheists and agnostics who think that it, it will be more beneficial for our society to get as far away as we possibly can from religion. And, you know, if we can even kind of force people not to be religious, all the better. The problem with that is that first they'll come for religious people and then they'll come for you. But more importantly, you also haven't yet really thought about what it means to start chiseling away at the foundation of America because it is undeniably Christian. So if we remove one of the fundamental building blocks of this society, what happens to the society? If you're not asking that question, then you're frankly a dangerous, radical revolutionary. And especially as it pertains to race, let me give you kind of a for instance here. It is undeniable that the progress we as a society have made is fundamentally connected to the way in which our Western civilization was connected to Christianity. Martin Luther King Jr. may be a radical communist and may not even be a formal Christian, but it is undeniable that Martin Luther King Jr. was using scripture and using biblical truths to weigh upon the conscience of a society that had been steeped in those truths for generations. And he was so effective because of that because there is a moral compass in this society that has been engineered to point toward the direction of Christ and to the Bible. You can even go further back and look at the Second Great Awakening, which is the movement in America that is responsible for abolition. If it weren't for white preachers, and yes, I know this preaches a white savior message, but if it weren't for white preachers in America, then we would still be slaveholders here in America. America wouldn't have ended slavery faster than any other nation in the history of the world if it weren't for white Christians preaching biblical truths. Now, you may cavalierly think that the Bible is just this fairy tale book that doesn't have anything to do with your personal life and you can live without it. But the truth is, if you live in America, you've never really understood what it means to live in a society without the Bible playing a major role in what we do on a regular basis. It leads me to the conclusion of this, if nothing else, that we are in desperate need of a great awakening today before the truth becomes totally irrelevant. Thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and to go with God.